I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Thirty years ago, I spent my Monday nights at Cook County Jail in Chicago leading Bible studies with the inmates. And I remember one evening when a young Christian that I'd been working with approached me with a bigger grin than usual on his face. And his big smile revealed to me that his two front teeth were missing. And I said, well, what happened to you? And he said, I was sharing Jesus on my cell block. And a fellow punched me in the mouth. And then he smiled again and he said, I got to suffer for Jesus. As I was studying this passage this week, it reminded me of that fellow because I've entitled our message, How to Suffer with a Smile. Now, suffering is kind of a difficult topic to speak about for a couple reasons. One is because very few of us have experienced what we can legitimately call persecution for our faith. Yeah, we get some reproach. We get rejection from people often when they find out that we're believers. I have had people say things about me that were false. I have pe had people slander me, but I have never been beaten. I have never been tortured. I have never been thrown in prison. I have never had my property confiscated. I have never had my family taken away from me because of my stand in faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm assuming that's true of most of you as well. So sometimes it's difficult for us to relate to the suffering that we read about in Scripture. But I think there's another factor too, and that is that American Christians for many years have bought into a false view of the Christian life that emphasizes the benefits and ignores the costs. You can hear many preachers today telling you that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. That if you will trust Him, He will help you overcome all of your problems. If you will just trust Him, you will have a prosperous life. And Jesus is marketed by many today as a solution to everything from weight loss to success in business to having a wonderful marriage to you name it. But the problem with that message is that there are certain verses about getting persecuted and losing your material possessions and maybe even your life that doesn't harmonize with that message. Now, why do preachers preach that way? Because it's easier to get people to sign up for the prosperity plan than it is to get people to sign up for the persecution plan. The problem is when people sign up for the prosperity plan and then they hit the troubles and the trials and the difficulties, what do they say? They get angry at God and they start saying, if that's the way He's going to treat me, then I'm not going to follow Him anymore. Because you see, I didn't sign up for hardship. I didn't sign up for persecution. I didn't sign up for suffering. I don't know how we got the view of the Christian life so far skewed from what the Bible says. Because the Bible doesn't tell us that the Christian life is a tea party with fine china. It tells us that the Christian life is a battle. It's a war. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 11, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand. In 2 Timothy 2, 3, he says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Reflecting back on his own life in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. Persecution should not be a surprise to a Christian. It ought to be an expectation. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. 
Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. Persecution is not an elective course in the Christian curriculum. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In fact, Paul tells us it's our privilege to do that. He says in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. See, when Jesus promised us an abundant life in John 10.10, He was not promising us a trouble-free life. That's why when you read on in John's Gospel into chapters 14 to 16, we find that Jesus promises us His love and His peace and His joy in the midst of our suffering and trials. You see, that is the abundant life. Jesus didn't ask people to sign up for the prosperity plan. He asked people to sign up for the persecution plan. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, He gathered the multitude together and He said, If anyone wishes to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. A cross is not a slightly aggravating irritation. A cross is an instrument of slow, torturous death. Suffering is part of the package. And our passage this morning tells us how to deal with suffering and persecution. Now, it's a passage that follows a strong warning passage against apostasy in verses 26 to 31. And just as he did in the warning passage back in chapter 6, after the warning, he offers a word of exhortation and encouragement. In fact, go back in your Bible to, to Hebrews chapter 6. I want you to notice this. Hebrews chapter 6, the first eight verses are a warning against falling away and telling us that the person who falls away finds it impossible to be renewed unto salvation. But right after the warning, notice what he says in verse 9. But beloved... We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. And now when you come to chapter 10, we have the warning passage in verses 26 to 31. And then after the warning passage, notice what he says in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. You see, he is believing the best about them. He says, I've just warned against falling away, but I'm sure I'm not talking to you. Because you are people of genuine faith who are going to continue. And so he encourages us in verses 32 to 39 to persevere, to hang in there. This is a passage that shows us how to have faith that endures any kind of persecution, any kind of difficulty, any kind of trial. And if you're going to make it as a Christian, you must learn to apply what he says here. Now I've divided this passage in three points. They're in your bulletin. They look to the past, the present, and the future. The first one is, remember God's pattern in the past. In verses 32 to 34. Notice verse 32. But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. Now the former days refers to the days right after they became believers. He's saying, remember the old days. Remember the good old days. Now a lot of Christians get to a certain age, and they spend most of their time remembering what they used to do in the Christian life. I won't tell you what age that is. But he's not telling us here, remember the good old days so you can sit in your rocking chair and kind of reflect on what you used to do. He's saying, remember the good old days so that you can start to live the same way in the present day. 
And he reminds them of three things that were true of them as new converts, three things that are true of every convert. Notice what they are. First of all, he says, remember how God enlightened you with spiritual understanding. See that in verse 32? Remember the former days when after being enlightened. That's a great concept. We probably understand it best in a passage like 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where it tells us that unbelievers are spiritually blind. As unbelievers, we were unable to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And in our condition of blindness, God shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What a beautiful passage. We couldn't see the light of the gospel, but God shone into our hearts to enlighten us and allow us to see. Do you remember when the light came on for you? Do you remember when you were enlightened? Do you remember when you went from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight? You see, before God opened our eyes, we were so blind that we didn't even see our need for the Savior. We were so blind that we, were thought, we thought we were good enough to get to heaven by our own good works. We were so blind that we didn't see how offensive our sins are to a holy God. We were so blind that we didn't appreciate the cross of Jesus Christ and what it means to us. But then while we were in that darkness, God graciously opened our eyes. And now we can say, with the converted slave trader John Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. The first thing we're to remember in the past is how we were enlightened. Second thing he tells them to remember is remember your newfound joy, no matter what the circumstances. Look again at verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Not long into the process, they encountered opposition. Now let me tell you something. This is one of Satan's strategies. He always attacks the new thing that God's doing. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, who showed up shortly thereafter? Satan. When God established the church in Acts chapter 2, new thing. Who showed up? Satan. They got outward persecutions. In Acts chapter 4, we see Peter and, and, and John are arrested. And they had persecution from within because when we get to Acts chapter 5, we find that Ananias and Sapphira were lying to, to the Holy Spirit. And it says there, Peter says there, Satan has filled your hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit. So there was outward persecution from the enemy. There was inward persecution as well. In the parable of the sower, Jesus talked about the seed that fell on the path. And he said the seed falls there, and while it's still sitting there, the birds come and snatch it away. And then when he applies that, who does he say the bird is? The bird is Satan. When the gospel falls freshly on a heart, something new is about to happen, and who shows up? Satan to snatch it away. So it's not surprising that here he says, you, were, you became believers in the past, and guess what happened right after you became believers? Verse 32, you endured a great conflict of suffering. So that Greek word translated conflict is the word from which we get our English word athletic. He's saying you faced a hard-fought, competitive struggle right after you became a believer. And then he gets more specific in verse 33. He says, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. Now, the phrase public spectacle in the, in the, is the Greek word from which we get our word theater. And the word reproaches means to revile or to literally cast in one's face. The word tribulations means to press in upon. And so he's painting a picture here. He's saying, when you became a believer, it's like suddenly you were on center stage and it was a hostile, 
crowd. And they were pressing in upon you and hurling abuse at you. That's a pretty apt picture. Have you been there before? Or thought you were there before? Feels like I'm on stage and they don't like my act. So they're throwing tomatoes at me. They're hurling abuse at me. They're ridiculing me. He says, that's what you experienced. He said it was partly that, but then it was more. If you go on in verse 33, he says, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated, for you show sympathy to the prisoners. Some of the opposition was coming at them, and some of the opposition was because they were stepping into the line of fire. You see, some of these Hebrew Christians had been imprisoned because of their faith, and they were showing uh, solidarity with those Christians. They were going and sympathizing and showing up at the prison to minister to those people. So they were really stepping in the line of persecution. But not only was the persecution due to reproaches and imprisonment, notice how thir verse 34 goes on. It says, And you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Now we're not told how they lost their property. Maybe corrupt officials confiscated it. Maybe the mobs came and stole their property and burned their houses. We don't know. What we do know is how they handled it. Notice verse 34. That little word, joyfully. They didn't just bite their lip and endure it when their property was taken. They accepted it joyfully. Now I have to pause there. How do you think some Christians today would handle it if their property was confiscated. I think they would get so irate that they would file a lawsuit to recover not only what they lost, but damages for mental anguish and emotional distress. We would be irate if somebody came and said, I'm going to take your property because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And that these people were singing the doxology while the mobs were carrying off their property. And then the third thing he says, remember, First of all, remember how you were enlightened. Second, remember how you rejoiced no matter what the circumstances. And then thirdly, remember how your values in life radically shifted. And I can pick out four ways that these new believers experienced a radical shift in their values. And as you look at this, this should be true of every Christian. Number one, there was a change from valuing the temporal to valuing the eternal. How do you joyfully watch people carry off your earthly possessions? Look at the end of verse 34. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. You see, they knew that they had treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. They knew that Jesus had gone to prepare a dwelling place for them and that He was coming back to take them to be with Him forever. They could hold on loosely to their earthly possessions because they knew that they had far greater eternal spiritual possessions. Secondly, they had a change in their values from valuing what others think to valuing what God thinks. As unbelievers, we go through life usually worried about what others think about us. When you become a believer, suddenly your focus changes to what God thinks about you. See, this explains verse 33 where it says they were suffering by being made a public spectacle through reproaches. You know, it's easy to get off the stage if you're in that situation. All you have to do is blend in with the crowd. All you have to do is laugh at a few dirty jokes and then suddenly you're not on that spiritual stage any longer. All you have to do is be one of the guys. 
and the reproach will stop. But these people stayed on the stage, took the reproach because they were more concerned about what God thought about them than what people thought about them. And that was a change in their values. Thirdly, they had a change from putting self first to putting God and others first. Again, as unbelievers, we naturally live for ourselves. We are innately self-centered. But when we become believers, our priority list turns upside down. Our focus now becomes loving God and loving others. Those are the two primary commandments. And we see this value shift in them in verse 34 where they show sympathy to the prisoners. Now imagine this. They're suffering. They could have said, you know what? My life is hard enough. I can't be bothered with you guys who are over there in prison. But even though their life was difficult, even though they were suffering... They were still putting others first by going and ministering sympathy to those who were in prison. And then fourthly, I see a change in their values from demanding that God be fair to submitting to His sovereign will. As unbelievers, we typically want God to treat us fairly. And we really think that's what we deserve. Now, we have no idea that if God really gave us what we really deserve, He would send us straight to hell. And we see this value system oftentimes when people face difficulty or loss because they start getting angry at God and say, this isn't fair. I don't deserve to be treated this way. Now, what I like about this passage is if you look in verses 33 and 34, you'll see that some of these new believers were thrown in prison and some were not. You see, God had different purposes in mind for different believers when it came to suffering and persecution. And so I want to say to you that, that you and I have no right to question God's wisdom or justice if He chooses to send trials our way while other Christians seemingly escape those trials. If we are not the ones in the hospital, if we are not the ones in prison for our faith, then we ought to be the ones who are visiting those people and ministering sympathy to them. Whatever trials or suffering come our way, we need to submit to God's purposes, trusting that He is working all things together for good. So the first way to have enduring faith is to remember God's pattern in the past. Remember how He enlightened you. Remember how you rejoiced no matter what circumstances you were going through. Remember how God shifted your values from temporal to eternal, from what others think to what God thinks, from putting yourself first and now putting God and others first, from demanding that God be fair to surrendering to God's purposes in your life. Secondly, redefine God's priorities in the present, verses 35 and 36. And I see that the writer confronts us here with two priorities. The first is negative in verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. These same Christians who had suffered joyfully when they were younger weren't doing quite as well now. Have you ever noticed, let me just speak to those who are older Christians, have you ever noticed that younger Christians seem to be bolder sometimes than we are? Because they haven't learned yet how to be cowards? You're Christians, he's saying all these exciting things about them, but guess what? They're all past tense. And now they're in the midst of suffering and persecution again, and he has to give them this exhortation, don't throw away your confidence. That tells me that you can have confidence in your life as a Christian and throw it away. How do we throw it away? Well, we, we misplace our confidence. Kind of like Peter. Remember when Peter was walking on the water? Confident guy. Why? Because he was looking at Jesus. 
Then he started looking at the waves and himself and he started to sink. And that's what we often do. See, if we're going to be effective, we have to hold on to our confidence. And who is our confidence in? I hear well-meaning Christians say, you've got to believe in yourself. That's the worst thing you could tell me. You know, that's, that's so unbiblical. Uh, I, I spent the first 20 years of my life believing in me, and it got me in all kinds of problems. So, so don't tell me to believe in me. That, that's a worldly concept. That's not a biblical concept. If my confidence is in me, then when the persecution comes, I'm going to run. But where is our confidence? Well, earlier in this chapter, in verse 19, he tells us we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Our confidence is in Jesus Christ and His blood. And so he says to us, don't throw away your confidence. That's the negative. And then he gives a positive in verse 36. He says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Priority number two is that you need endurance. The Christian life is not a 100-meter dash. It's a marathon. It's a 15-round prize fight. It's not going to get you anything by going two rounds. You don't sprint through the Christian life. You have to endure through the Christian life. But I want you to notice something here. It's not just endurance to fight the opposition. It is endurance to do the will of God. Have you ever noticed... That under persecution, there's always a temptation to compromise. Have you ever noticed that in the midst of persecution, we often try to find a shortcut that will get us out of it? Often a shortcut that doesn't line up with God's Word. You see, he's not saying here, I want you to get through it any way you can. No, he says, I want you to endure in the midst of the persecutions by obeying God's will. We have a great example of that earlier in this chapter. In verse 7, he gives us the example of Jesus who came to do God's will. And what was God's will? The cross. Was that easy? No. In fact, you remember in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan came and tempted Jesus to take a shortcut. He said, if you will bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. In other words, you can get to the crown by bypassing the cross. There's a temptation. I'll get to the same end, but I'll bypass the suffering. That's often Satan's temptation to us. But thankfully, Jesus resisted any compromise, and He steadfastly obeyed God's will all the way to the cross. And you and I are called to endure in obeying God's will, even when it means going through the suffering and going through the persecution. Now, the end of verse 36 leads us to the third exhortation, and that is, regard God's promises in the future. The end of verse 36 says, you will receive what was promised. Now what is it that God has promised us? Well, a lot of things. But if you look in the context, go back to chapter 9 and verse 15. The last phrase of that verse says that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And I see these closing verses in Hebrews chapter 10 answering some important questions about God's promises to us. Let me suggest five questions. The first has to do with the portion. The question is, how much? You know, when you're, when you're going through persecution, you say, this is really difficult. How much is the promise going to be that God's going to give me? Well, if you go back to verse 34, what does he say? He says, they gave up the seizure of their property joyfully, knowing that they have for themselves a better possession and an abiding one. Two things about the possession. It's better than anything on this earth. And it's an abiding 
possession. It lasts longer than anything on this earth. In fact, in 915, he says it is eternal. That should be enough. But if you look at verse 36 again, it says that you may receive what was promised and, and we pass over the end of verse 35. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Those are parallel concepts. The, the, the promise is synonymous with the, with the reward. And he says the reward is what? It is great. So it's better than anything here. It's abiding, it's eternal, and it's great. That's pretty big. Question number two has to do with the perspective. How long? We always ask that question when we're in persecution. How long is this going to last? Look at verse 37. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. It's a very little while from God's perspective. That's not really our perspective, is it? It seems like it's been going on for a long time. That's why in the midst of trials and difficulties and persecution, we need God's perspective. We need an eternal perspective. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He had the right perspective. He looked at affliction and said it's light and it's momentary. He looked at glory and said it's eternal, it's weighty, and it's far beyond all comparison. You see, to have enduring faith now, we need to get God's eternal perspective. Whatever you were suffering through today, it is a very little while in comparison with eternity. Third question has to do with the purpose. How come? How come I need to go through this persecution obeying the Word of God? Look at verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. God has no pleasure in him. Who's the him? The one who shrinks back. Which tells us that God has pleasure in the one who endures. And so our purpose in enduring affliction is simply to please God. And again, that ought to be enough. And then the fourth question has to do with the plan. How? How do we please God? We'll look at verse 38 again. But my righteous one shall live by faith. How do we please God? We please God by living by faith. You see, we are not only saved by faith. We as Christians are to live by faith. I love that verse in Colossians 2.6 where it says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How did you receive Christ? By faith. How do you walk in Him? By faith. Now this, this phrase is, is, a, is a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous or the just shall live by faith. It's quoted in the New Testament on three different occasions. It's quoted in Romans 1.17, in Galatians 3.11, and here in Hebrews 10.38. And it's interesting that Romans emphasizes the first phrase, the righteous. It tells us how we are declared righteous by God. Galatians emphasizes the middle phrase, shall live. How do we live in liberty in our Christian life? Hebrews emphasizes the last phrase, by faith. Because this verse introduces the whole 11th chapter, which is a chapter all about faith. And in that chapter, in verse 6, it tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. You see, that's the plan. How do I please Him? Living in faith. And then a final question has to do with the people. You may be sitting here this morning looking at this, and you're saying, well, how will I ever make it? Now, I see the promises of God, but, but how will I ever make it to the promises of God? Look at verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, 
but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And I find it interesting in this passage the way he kind of progresses. progresses. If you go back to verse 26, he uses the, the pronoun we. He says, for if we go on sinning willfully. And then he shifts in verse 29 to he. He says, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? But now in verse 39, he switches to those. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. From we to he to those. And now he, he defines the line. He says, those are the ones who shrink back. We are the ones who endure to the preserving of the soul. And I don't think he's just saying in this verse, I hope you guys make it. I think what he's saying is, I know you guys are going to make it because I know that you are the people of God. I know who you are in Christ. And even more than that, I know who is in you to produce that end. That's what Paul could say in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's not simply a matter of me as a Christian struggling, hoping I'll make it to the other shore. It's a matter of God beginning that work in me. He's the one who enlightened me in the past. He's the one who gives me the confidence in the present. And He's the one who gives me the endurance to go on to the finish line. So if you will remember God's pattern in the past, if you will redefine God's priorities in the present, if you will regard God's promises in the future, you can suffer with a smile. We're going to close our service this morning by having the praise team